Well, we are in uh, Romans. If you're new with us, we are uh, have been in um, this series since January. We're actually going to finish this coming January, um, which is just a little less than the time we spent in Hebrews a few years ago. Um, but this has been a, an exciting study. We're in message number 31 um, this morning, and we're in uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Will you stand with me and let's read our scripture together. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully, And without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, I want you to know this morning that as uh, as I come to this passage and teaching this passage, I come with a fear. And and the fear is that uh, I will not do this passage justice. Um, there is so much here. Um, this is not one of those passages you want to muff <laughs> as a teacher or preacher. Uh, it is one of the most consequential chapters in all of the New Testament. And I hope that you have a Bible open today. And if you don't have a Bible uh, open or one that you can turn on and off, um, Go ahead right now and get out into the aisles. There are Bibles on the little tables. Have a Bible open this morning. Um, Very, very important. Our title this morning is The Sovereignty of God in Election. And when we say that God is sovereign, we are acknowledging that God possesses supreme, unrivaled authority in heaven and on earth to infinity and beyond, and that he therefore also possesses total freedom 
to exercise that authority in the accomplishment and in the administration of his eternal purposes. By election, we mean God's prerogative to choose whomever he chooses for reasons that are entirely his own. The effect of God's election is that believers in Jesus are those whom God chose for salvation from before the foundations of the world. Chapter 9 begins in a tone that stands in sharp contrast with what preceded it at the close of chapter 8. I don't have time to read that this morning, but go back and read verses 29 to 39 of chapter 8. Be reminded of all that God, all that Paul said there about God's elect, that we are that we were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, and never ever to be separated by anything or anyone in heaven and earth from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And, and chapter 8 just ends on this amazing crescendo. By contrast, but fully in keeping with the context In chapter 9, verse 1, the tone changes. And Paul expresses his great sorrow, his unceasing anguish over this fact that none of that applies to the majority of his own people, the Jews, because of their disbelief in Jesus as Messiah and their overt rejection of him. It's easy to be reminded here of what John wrote regarding Messiah Jesus in the first chapter of his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In verses 4 and 5, Paul lists eight great benefits that God had given to Israel as a people. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, adoption as the the children of God, the glory, that is the Shekinah glory, the presence of God among his people, the covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses, the giving of the law itself, the, some of your translations might say service, the The English Standard Version uses the word worship, speaks to the temple worship. All of the promises of God, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus was a Jew. So they had all of that. But as Mark Deaver wrote, benefits unused become benefits abused. And so they, in fact, became liabilities. And Israel, as a nation, as God's chosen people, failed to recognize in Jesus of Nazareth their own Messiah. And this reality broke the heart of the Apostle Paul. It broke him. 
And so great, he says, was the sorrow and anguish of his own heart that he wrote in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If it was possible, and if it would have had the effect of correcting Israel's hard-heartedness and spiritual insensitivity, Paul went on record to say that he would personally be willing to have, to have sacrificed his own life, his own salvation, his own relationship with God, even his eternal destiny with God. He would have chosen hell if it meant that they, by turning in faith to Jesus their Messiah, would have chosen heaven. Paul's purpose in chapter 9, I think, is at least twofold. On the one hand, to inform his readers about the current status of Israel in relationship to their God, and at the same time to reveal truth about God's sovereignty in relationship to his election, his choosing, and eternal salvation. And he does that through a series of four revealing questions. We're going to deal with the first three this morning, but the first one we'll only touch on by way of review because Matt did such a beautiful job last week of opening God's word to us on that particular question. And then next week we will engage with the fourth question in verse 30 and beyond. So this morning, three revealing questions. And for those of you who are antsy about filling in the blanks, here they are. Just three this morning. First one is, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed? Secondly, is God unjust? Is God unjust? And third, why does he still find fault? So let's begin with that first one. Has the word of God failed? Beginning at verse 6, Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now granted, Paul didn't write this in the form of a question, but if you will, instead as the answer to an assumed question. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Has God's word failed? God had promised to bless Israel, but they had forfeited those blessings through their unbelief. Israel's failure was her own failure. Not God's failure to be faithful to his word and his promise. And to support that assertion, Paul first, 
first states very clearly in verse 6 that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There have always been two Israels. The Israel of flesh, of physical descent from Jacob, and spiritual Israel, or Israel of faith. Today we might say there's a third Israel, which is national Israel. But it is to spiritual Israel, Israel of faith, that God's promise was addressed. And Paul had already drawn this distinction in chapter 2 when he wrote, you remember that, chapter 2, several years ago? For, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So not only does Paul make the point that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all of ethnic Israel belong to spiritual Israel, but in verses 7 to 9, he then goes two generations further back and adds that not even all who are descended from Abraham are his offspring because it was through Isaac, the child of the promise, the miracle child, the child of faith, or as Paul put it in Galatians 4.29, him who was born according to the Spirit, that God said Abraham's descendants would be named through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Ishmael, the child of the flesh, the child of human presumption. And in the same way, in verses 10 to 13, Paul points next to Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Before they were born, and so before they had done anything good or bad according to God's sovereign purpose, and not in any sense according to their subsequent moral or spiritual choices, God determined that the older would serve the younger. And so it was through Jacob, or Israel, that the descendants would be named. This, this determination was not a matter of anything they had done, anything they would do, but it was rooted exclusively in the call of God. And all of this, Paul says in verse 11, was in order. Don't miss this. Underline it in your Bible. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Some of your translations will have the word stand. That God's purpose in election might stand not because of works, not because of works, but because of him who, what? Calls. As biblical background, Paul quotes from chapter 1 of the prophet Malachi. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, that's a startling statement. What we need to understand is that this is not active hatred on the part of God. What is being expressed here is a choice, a preference. But I'd like to suggest that what should startle us most is not that God said, Esau, I hated, but that God said, Jacob, I loved. Why? Why? 
Because if you have the idea that God owes his love, that anyone is owed anything from God but judgment, then you've not yet come to understand God's perfect hatred for sin. And therefore the power and the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. Neither are you going to understand the message of chapter 9 if you think that granting salvation to anyone and everyone is something that God is obligated to do. But you may very well ask the second question because it's a logical question that follows on the first. Is God then unjust? If God chooses some and not others, isn't he being unfair? Paul answers, by no means. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You may have noticed that Paul has moved now from the examples of the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to examples from the time of the Exodus, to the time of Moses and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And his central argument here is that God has mercy on whom he chooses. And notice the surface structure of this passage, verses 14 to 18. For he says to Moses, verse 15, and then so then in verse 16. So there's a ground, there's the example, then there's the inference or the teaching in verse 16. And then in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, again the ground, and then the inference or the teaching. So then, verse 18. Background on Moses. In Exodus 33, we find Moses begging God to continue to be present with Israel even though they had rejected him. And in verse 18, he asks the Lord, in the course of the conversation, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Notice what he's asking. He's saying, please God, show me who you are, what it is that makes you God. Now listen to God's response in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. When you know my name, you will know my glory. When you know who I really am, you will know my glory. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here in verse 15, Paul is talking about a characteristic of God that is at the very core of his being, who he really is. Mercy, by its very definition, 
cannot ever be cast as an obligation. In fact, to say that mercy is owed, or to say that mercy is unfair, is to say that it is owed to everyone. But mercy is undeserved. It is, in fact, not receiving what we deserve. And so it must be totally free. You see what Paul's getting at here? To say it is unfair for God only to have mercy on some is a self-contradictory statement. Would we say that God owes salvation to anyone? Of course not. And if he owes salvation to no one, then he is free to give it to whomever he chooses. You may have never thought of God as a free agent. Sovereign, free in his choosing. And so then Paul infers salvation does not depend on what anyone may desire or what they may work tirelessly for. Literally does not depend on the one willing or the one running is the Greek translation, the one running, the one frantically working for their salvation. It depends entirely on the mercy of God. Tim Keller wrote, Nobody has any claim on God's mercy. If they did, it would no longer be mercy. Since the wages of sin is death, the shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. John Stott echoes that. He says, The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If, therefore, anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, but if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. See, if we're really going to demand justice, if we're really going to demand fairness, then we all deserve hell. Eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God. From Moses, Paul turns to his nemesis, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Every Jewish child growing up knew who Pharaoh was. The great enemy of the Israelites who enslaved them, harshly treated them, refused to let them go free when Moses came calling. Today we would call this man a genocidal dictator, a tyrant. And the secret that Paul reveals here is that Pharaoh did all of that because God had already decided that he would. Here in 9.17, Paul quotes God's words to Pharaoh in Exodus 19.6, For this very purpose, I, the Lord, have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you've read that passage, and if, uh, 
you will remember there's a repeated refrain in God's communication to Pharaoh, which is so that so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. God, through Pharaoh, through the Exodus, through the plagues, through all that God did there in Egypt, was displaying his holiness, his power, his sovereign authority. So then Paul infers in verse 18, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Wow, there's a new wrinkle. How are we to understand that? Some pretty difficult truths to grapple with, but in verses 17 to 18, Paul uses Pharaoh as a case study in the relationship of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I'd encourage you to read the narrative of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapters 4 through 14. And as you do, watch for the interplay of God hardening Pharaoh's heart on the one hand and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Both are true. Both are taking place there in that narrative. And what I find particularly astounding is this, that, that of all people in history that he could have chosen, Paul used Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the genocidal dictator, as the example for the hard-heartedness of unbelieving Israel. You remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of Romans? That, that people's hearts were filled with lust, filled with impurity, and so God gave them over. God gave them over to their desires. You know, like the old Burger King commercial, have it your way. You want that so badly? Okay, here it is. Experience the fullness of that. Experience the consequence of those choices, of those pursuits. Paul provided in chapter 1, in that, the background to the point he's making here in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 9. God's heart hardening of Pharaoh's heart was simply giving him over to what was already in his heart. Pharaoh decided to resist God. God reinforced him in that position. God simply gave Pharaoh over to what Pharaoh had already chosen. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that the world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint on it, and this world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence at any point, there is hardening there. That is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. You look around us today and we'd have to say God is removing his restraining hand. Paul then goes to his third question, which is a logical question for, the, for someone who's following the, Paul's logic here. Why does he still find fault? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, is it fair of God to hold us accountable to him when in fact he holds all the cards? calls all the shots, makes all the decisions? Why does God still 
blame us? Why does he still hold us accountable? Who can resist his will? And in response to those questions, in good rabbinical form, Paul offers three responses. All three responses center on who God is. Not on who we are, but on who God is. Have you ever considered that most of our problems in life are due to a false image of God? A distorted image of who he really is? Paul's first response to his critics' two questions is to pose three counter-questions. In verses 20 to 21, all of which pertain to our identity, they ask whether, one, we know who we are, two, what kind of a relationship we think exists between us and God, and three, what attitude toward him we consider appropriate to this relationship. Listen to what he says in verses 20 to 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, here's a heavy dose of reality. Heavy dose of reality. About who we are, about who God is, the true nature of the gap that exists between us. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The answer is built into the question. You are man. He is God. And Paul's offering here, I think, a stark reminder of who we are. We are human. He is divine. We are the creation. He is the creator. And we should never get the difference confused. This word that's translated answer back means to give a hostile reply. It means to get testy with God. It's because we want to sit in the place of God that we therefore also want to dictate to him the terms of our relationship with him. And next Paul asks, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? It occurs to me that the image of the village potter at his wheel would have been a familiar sight in Old Testament times. And Paul likely had in mind the words of God to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. The timely word for America today, is it not? Is it appropriate for a piece of artwork to interrogate the artist about why he made it the way he had? Is it appropriate for a piece of artwork to reject the very notion that there is an artist at all in the first place? Is it appropriate for a piece of artwork to suggest that that the artwork created itself to defame the artist and call him an idiot? Timely questions. To liken humans to lumps of clay is to emphasize our creational origin. Reminds us of who we are. I had a friend in college who used to call me a sack of dirt. That was... 
an expression of affection, I guess. You sack of dirt. But I always thought it was kind of good. So it reminded me of who I am. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. You are a sack of dirt. And the breath of life was breathed into you. See, in understanding God as creator, we come to know who we are in our creatureliness. Modern man rejects the notion of a personal creator God, not because of an insistence on scientific inquiry and scientific integrity, but because of an insistence on personal autonomy and personal sovereignty. We want to sit in the place of God. Paul's third question asks, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does any of you take pottery in school, high school, college? Some of you. And I remember being in the in the, the art building in college and, and taking a pottery class, and I know that when, when things weren't going well with a particular pot, it, it just it just got tossed back into the bucket where all the rest of the clay was, full of water and clay. It just got tossed back in. Why? It wasn't going well. Paul's asking here, doesn't God possess the right of a potter over the clay? I never saw anybody go into any, you know, moral fits having dumped the clay back into the barrel. Maybe upset because the pot didn't come out the way they had hoped it, but there was no thought of, it's just clay. There's more where that came from. If the potter chooses to create from one lump of clay both a chalice to be used for the Lord's Supper and a toilet bowl, isn't that the artist's prerogative? Again, Paul may have had in mind another verse in Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. I thought that was an interesting expression. But it really goes back to, Why are you making me this way? Let's understand what it is that Paul's condemning. He is not condemning anyone asking sincere, intelligent questions to gain better understanding. Paul's condemning the person who rebels and protests God's sovereign authority, God's freedom, refusing to let God be God, and in doing so, refusing to acknowledge his or her own true status as a creature who is therefore accountable and subservient to the Creator. And there's a lot here. So let's remember now, Paul is still answering the question, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? In verses 22 to 23, he provides a second response. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
It's a rhetorical question. But its implication seems to be that, that God's patience in delaying judgment keeps the door of repentance open longer, yes. But it also makes the ultimate expression of his wrath more just and more horrible, more dreadful, more terrible. But the demonstration of his mercy and his grace even more glorious. See, if God is acting consistently with his own character in both wrath and mercy, there can be no possible objection. In fact, one of the ways of understanding the expression the righteousness of God is that God acts in perfect correspondence to his character. He never, he never acts outside of his own character. In verses 24 to 29, Paul provides his third and final answer that, that God foretold these things in the Old Testament scriptures. Should be a no surprise. Among the objects of God's mercy, prepared in advance for glory, Paul includes even us, that is himself, his readers in Rome, both Jews and Greeks who have trusted in Christ. And it's interesting that, that to make that point, he first takes scripture from the prophet Hosea, that was originally written to Israel, and he applies it now to Gentile believers. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Paul says, did you not understand that? Did you not understand that that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, to proclaim the glory of the Lord to the Gentiles. Paul wrote similarly to the church at Ephesus, made up mostly of Gentile believers. He said, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That we who are Gentiles have been included in Christ is a remarkable reversal of status. It's an incredible demonstration of God's mercy and his grace. We who were outsiders have been welcomed in. We who were aliens have become citizens. We who were strangers are now members of the family. And Paul's final reference brings us back to the sad problem of Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah. God had already declared through the prophet Isaiah that only a remnant of Israel would ultimately be saved. That like Sodom and Gomorrah, only a handful would be spared God's judgment. And so he writes, and Paul writes in verses 27 to 29, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Remember that was God's promise to Abraham, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully 
and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We would have been destroyed. Citing these two prophecies from Isaiah, Paul saying, You know, you know that God has always been the God who rejected those who, though they deserved his blessing, presumed upon it. If the Jews are rejecting Christ and his people, Paul is saying, should that really surprise us? But shouldn't we also examine ourselves? See, the Jews thought the law and obedience was the focus, but even their best obedience like ours was never enough, and it was never the way. Each of us, in turn, needs to move from the place of judging God, blaming God, pointing our fingers at God, trying to take the place of God, and come to terms with the fact that He will, He will judge each of us. So each of us needs to reach out for God's mercy. There's an old Puritan father who said, all is mercy this side of hell. Interesting statement. And in that, we realize that each day is a mercy especially if we're separated from God, especially if we haven't trusted in Christ. Each day is a mercy. Each day is another day before judgment comes, ultimate judgment. It's also a reminder that God's mercy is still being offered to those who will receive it. those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, God's utterly free to choose to show his undeserved mercy to whomever he wants. He's free. And to give others over to the life and eternal destiny that they themselves have chosen. And you and I have this moment then in time to make our decision whether to trust in our own goodness our own cleverness, our own self-styled wisdom, our own frantic religious life, or to cast ourselves on the mercy and the grace of a sovereign God who offers us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's something that this passage tells me. God can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He can take that heart of stone, that hardened heart out of us, and exchange it for a heart of flesh, a tender heart. When I was a kid, I had a poster in my on the wall of my bedroom, and I've never forgotten this. It's been an image for me. It's been significant for years. And it was a a stone cliff, the, the face of a stone cliff, and there was a crack in the rock, and out of that crack came a flower. And the caption said, 
God's love can break the hardest heart so that faith can grow. This passage tells me that we should never give up praying for those in our lives who don't know Christ. It tells us that, that we should never give up hope for the people that seem the furthest from God. That God can bring change. He is sovereign. He can extend his mercy to whomever he chooses. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this time in your word. This is a tough passage. Hard thoughts. But I thank you that you are a sovereign God. That you're not blowing in the wind. That you are who you are. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we can trust your word. And that when you extend to us the opportunity... to receive mercy, to find grace. That you accomplish your purpose. Your call is effective. And Lord, as we are here today, we may be thinking about people in our own lives that don't know you, in our families, in our neighborhoods or communities that don't know you and our hearts break for them Lord would you remind us to pray that they would hear the gospel that is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek also to the Gentile Lord we uh, we want to live by faith in your promises and therefore to live boldly and confidently and I pray for those here today who may be hearing this for the first time and it may seem like gobbledygook and yet they're hearing your voice calling them tugging at them Lord I pray that you would give them today that gift of faith that leads to life and you pray it in the name of Jesus